as, as they go, I'm reminded of a couple of weeks ago, I was taking our kids home from school, and on the way home, we came to a railroad crossing. And as we got to this railroad crossing, the arms came down right in front of us. And our girls were confused, because the arms came down, but there's no train there yet. They said, Dad, why, why do we have to stop? Daddy, why can't we just go around that? You know, I'm kind of like looking out the front of the windshield, like trying to see down the track, and there's no train in sight, and reality is I'm kind of tempted to try and drive around it too. Like, look, don't judge me. I know you've been there and been tempted to try it yourself. Like, no, we didn't do that. I'm a good dad. At least I try at it. Um, but look, as, as much as you feel frustrated waiting for the train, you know that the risk of trying to drive through there is not worth it. It's way too dangerous. The stakes are too high. And as irritating as the railroad crossing arms are, you know that they're there for your good. Right? My guess is that when you heard Pastor Jared read this passage, you felt a little bit similar. Yeah, I know that's in the Bible, but can't we just go around that part? Can't we get to the next section? Well, we could. We could. And I'd be lying if I didn't acknowledge that that was a temptation. Let's just kind of zip around this and get to Genesis 6, right? But the reason that we don't do that, we pause here, is because we have a core conviction that the entire Bible, all of God's Word, is given for our transformation, not just for information, so I want to put 2 Timothy 3 up on the screen. It's a verse that maybe you know, maybe you've memorized, maybe you could quote, but I want to remind you of it. Let's, let's read this together. I'll read it out loud. You just follow along. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Leave it up there for a second. I'll just remind you of what that says. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is profitable for teaching. All scripture, even genealogies, are profitable for correction. All scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. So that you, God's people, will be fully equipped, that you will be complete, ready to take on every good work. Every single passage, even these ones that don't immediately make sense to us. You see, we believe the entire Bible is inspired by God. We believe it's all from God so that you can live a changed life, that you'll be complete, equipped for every good work. And if we start jumping around, we functionally deny this reality. We functionally say that some of the passages just aren't that important, that we're not sure if we really believe 2 Timothy 3. And this temptation that we all feel, like it's not a new thing, right? This isn't, this isn't like a, a new post-COVID reality or, or anything silly like that. It was 150 years ago that the great preacher Charles Spurgeon was pushing back on that same impulse. Listen to what Spurgeon said 150 years ago. He says, I fear you are not of God if you account a portion of the Lord's words to be unworthy of your consideration, Beloved, we prize the whole range of the words of the Lord. We do not set aside the histories any more than the promises. Above all, do not drop into the semi-blasphemy of some who think the New Testament vastly superior to the Old. In the whole book, from Genesis to Revelation, the words of the Lord are found and they are always pure words. 
So what I want to do is I want to start a sentence and not complete it, and I want to invite you in your mind to complete the sentence. All right, let's, let's have a little fun with this. In a world that seems to be going off the rails, we need... Think about that in your mind. You know, just, what's, that, what's that sentence be completed as? In a world that seems to be going off the rails, we need dot, dot, dot. Let me finish it for you. We need Christians to have more confidence in the word of God. Now that may sound foundational and like something you could have assumed, but my guess is many of us question whether we should actually spend 40 minutes explaining Genesis 5. So Christians, you need more confidence in the whole word of God. The book of Hebrews says it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That's why every service here, we have at least five scripture readings. It's why our pastoral prayers are based on scripture and why our songs are scripturally infused. It's why we preach expositionally through books of the Bible. It's why our kids are memorizing big chunks of John 1 right now. You'll actually get to hear from them next Sunday, so you'll want to be here and, and catch that. It's why our Bible Institute focuses on pushing you deeper into the Bible week in, week out. It's why our Sunday school classes focus on knowing the big story of the Bible and getting the zoomed out view. You see, virtually every single church in the world will say they're biblically based, but we work hard to make sure that our ministry practices align with this core conviction. It's really important. And my guess is that most of you would affirm the core conviction that we should have more confidence in the word of God, that all scripture is inspired by God, it's without error. You, you would believe those things, but I wonder if the evidence of your life would match up with that. I wonder, when is the last time that you invited a brother or sister to gather with you and say, let's just read God's word together? There are thousands, millions, billions of things you could discuss but do you gather over the word of God to say this is where the power to change exists? When you evangelize, you're thinking of someone that Pastor Jared just asked us to pray for that doesn't yet know Jesus. Have you asked them to simply open the words of life and read them with you? The Gospel of John is a great place to start. Genesis is a great place to start. They're actually all great, so pick any of them, but Christian, you need more confidence in the word of God. And yes, I know that with your lips you affirm that, but what does the evidence of your life say? I want to challenge you to think more about that. Here's how Genesis 5 is tied in and connects to all of this. If our pastors lack the confidence to open up a passage like Genesis 5, the difficult passages, and show you how they really change your life, then how in the world can I expect you to have the same confidence in the word of God? It's critical. So yes, we could skip the Genesis 5 genealogy, but we're not going to. And you might still wonder what it means and why it's there, but in 30 minutes, my prayer is that you'll not only see it, but be drawn to worship by it. And that might feel crazy, like a, a supernatural act, the reality is it is a supernatural act for God to open our eyes to see his word clearly and to be changed by it. So let's go back to prayer right now, and let me ask you to pray for yourself that you would see and hear his word and have a humble heart to be changed by it. 
God, we come to your word humbly, but boldly asking for your grace. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and give us a humble heart to receive your word and be changed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Right at the outset of Genesis 5, there's a key phrase that you need to take a look at. Look back at your copy of God's word. It says, this is the book of the generations. Critical phrase. It may not be immediately obvious to you, but it's a really big deal. And if you're new with this, let me take just a quick moment to update you on where we've been so you can see why this phrase is so important. Genesis 1 and 2, we walked through and says that God made everything in the world, everything you can see, everything you can't, he made it good. Genesis 3, we see mankind turning away from God, rebelling, choosing to go their own way. The Bible calls this sin when I say I'm going to do it my way, not God's way. And it brought consequences and curses upon them. In the middle of Genesis 3, God gives a promise that there would be offspring. We call it the, a seed, seed of the woman. This offspring would crush Satan's head. And it sets the trajectory for the rest of the Bible to be looking for this offspring that will finally crush Satan's head and undo the curses that we've brought onto ourselves. And that sort of marks out the whole storyline of the Old Testament. God's people are looking for this seed of the woman that would ultimately be Jesus Christ, this serpent crusher. And they're saying, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Where's the serpent crusher? They're looking for him. That's why Jesus, when he shows up, people ask him, are you the one? Or are we supposed to be looking for somebody different? Right at the beginning of the Gospels, you'll see them asking. Because all throughout, ever since Genesis 3, they've been asking that question, looking for the serpent crusher. So the phrase, the book of the generations, is really important because it's tracking the lineage it's guiding the search for the serpent crusher. We see this phrase here in chapter 5, but we also see it in chapter 6, again in chapter 10, twice in chapter 11, twice in chapter 25, twice in chapter 36, and again in chapter 37. It's all over. And some of these genealogies are longer, some of them are shorter, but they form the backbone of Genesis, they guide the search for the seed of the woman who would one day crush Satan and reverse the effects of sin. Now, all of that can make sense to you. You can start to have a, a framework to understand why are these things actually here, but you're still noticing that we haven't done a whole lot of digging yet in Genesis 5. I haven't taken you back there. Good point. I, I hope as you're listening in your, your mind, kind of conversation you're having with yourself, you're saying, Justin, take me back to the Bible. I don't want to hear your flowery words. I want to hear what the Bible says and what they mean. So we'll get there in just a moment. I'm, I'm not putting that off. Um, but here, here's the approach we'll take. With a kind of a tricky passage, I want to get back to the basics, the fundamentals. And we'll ask three questions of this passage but these three questions, I want you to know, you can ask of any passage you study, any passage you read, and it's a great way to guide your daily Bible reading. Okay, these three questions are simply this. What does this say about God? What does this say about people? And what does this say about redemption? We'll ask those three questions of Genesis 5, but I'm inviting you to ask those questions of every single Bible passage you ever read. What's it say about God? What's it say about people? 
and what's it say about redemption? So let's go to the first question here. What does this say about God? We see this in verses one through five. It's telling us something about God. Look back at your copy of the scriptures with me, reading, starting in verse one. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man, and they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So right at the outset, God is going back to creation. He's reminding his people he's the ultimate authority. This is the world after sin. And in essence, what God is saying is, yes, you knew at the outset I was the ultimate authority, but no sinful rebellion can dethrone me. I'm still the authority. I always will be because my authority is grounded in me as the creator of all things. That never changes, never will, never has, never will for all eternity. Pastor Jared just prayed for the Ukraine that the sinful rebellion of the Russians wouldn't dethrone the rightful authority in Ukraine. But praise God, when it comes to him on his throne, there's never any instability. There's no rebellion that we can take on that will ever dethrone him. That's critical that we see that about God in Genesis 5. And in the, the naming of humanity, yes, he creates, but naming is an act of authority. And so God reminds Adam, yes, I made you and I named you because me naming you says I have authority over you. And I've given you a degree of authority so that you will go and name your offspring. You'll have authority over them that I've given to you. He reminds them you're made in the image and the likeness of God. And so I've commissioned you, God says to Adam, to represent me and to reflect me. That's what it means to be an image bearer. Every single one of you made in the image of God, you're called to represent God on this earth and reflect what God is like. To create life, we've said over the last several weeks. To bring order out of the chaos. To take the, the formless and make beauty out of it, as God did. To find ways to bless the created order. You're made in the image of likeness of God, representing and reflecting him. And just as God is the authority over Adam and over Seth, he's also the authority over all humanity, and no rebellion can dethrone him. There's something else. There's a second thing we see about God here in these first couple of verses. It's that he is a loving father who intends to bless. God is a loving father who intends to bless. I've been telling you that the theme of Genesis is creation and blessing. God creates and then he blesses. He creates and he blesses. Over and over and over you see this theme. And so verse 2, God reminds his people. He says, I have blessed you. Don't lose sight of the fact that even in your sinful rebellion, I still intend to bless you. And how does he confirm his intent to bless? He lays out this lineage, this line through Seth. He says, I've promised that a serpent crusher Someone who will overturn the effects of sin is coming. His name will be Jesus. We've not been told that yet, and it'll come through the line of Seth. And so detailing this line is God's promise of, hey, even in your sin, I've not lost sight of my plans to bless you. Now, I don't know if 
you are like this or not, if you're a parent, my kids will frequently say, Dad, you're always taking away the fun stuff. My kids get, or my friends get to do so much more than what you let us do. They get to do fill-in-the-blank fun thing that their parents probably don't let them do. They're just trying to manipulate me, right? You, You get that. But what do I do in that moment? I'll remind them, here's how I have already blessed you. Here's these things that we're doing for you to see that I love you. And I'll remind them oftentimes, hey, I've got this other plan to bless you as well. We're going out to ice cream this afternoon. I go back and I say, I love you. I've blessed you. I love you. I intend to bless you. That's what God's doing. I love you. I already blessed you. I still love you and I intend to bless you. Really important to see that. So in essence, God is saying that no sin and no rebellion will ever thwart his plans to bless his people. He's blessed and continues to bless. But since we live on this side of the fall in a sin-cursed world, it's difficult to hold on to both of these truths about God. That he's the ultimate authority and that he's a loving father who intends to bless us. Now just think about this in terms of your relationships. Does God really have the authority to tell me that I must love difficult people and that I must forgive them? Yes, he does. See Ephesians 4. But don't divorce that from his lovingness and his intent to bless you because his command to love and to forgive them is actually his means of blessing. Because if you go your own way and choose not to love difficult people, choose not to forgive them, you're gonna become a cold and bitter and distant person and you won't like yourself. It will feel better to do it my way, but you're actually gonna bring a curse on yourself because when you pull back and do it your way, it doesn't go well. So yes, he has the authority to tell you how to live, but it's actually his means of blessing at the exact same time. And we're always trying to divorce those things. Be like, no, I know better. I know where the blessing is found. And he's saying, no, I'm the authority and I'm your loving father who intends to bless you. You can think about it in your finances. Does God really have the authority to tell me that my generosity towards his kingdom might reveal my eternal destiny? Yes, he does have that authority. He says that in Matthew 6. But just like the prior example, when we turn away and go our own way, we think that we have money, but the reality is money has us. We can't be loosed from it. And so God saying, hey, be generous, because I've been generous to you in my son's blood, is actually his loving command to free us from the chains of this world to live a free life of generosity. You can't separate his authority over all things from him being the loving father that intends to bless you. That's why it's so important that when you say, what does this passage tell us about God? It tells us that we should not only recognize these things, but celebrate he's the ultimate authority and a loving father that intends to bless us. That's the first question. What's it tell us about God? Secondly, what does this passage tell us about people? What does it tell us about people. Verses 6 through 24, when Jared read, there's kind of the formula. You heard that over and over and over, right? So-and-so lived so long, father to son, lived a little while longer, had other sons and daughters. He was this old and he died. Like the five elements of that 
repetitive thing, right? We're not going to read the whole thing. Don't freak out. But uh, let's go back and read one of the sections, just starting in verse 6, just to remind ourselves of this pattern, because the pattern is actually really important to understanding the genealogy. Let's pick up in verse 6. We read, When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. You guys see that, that formula throughout. What does this tell us about people? Well, first of off, first off it tells us they lived a really long time. Like, what are we supposed to do with that, right? Uh, the, the nature of the way it's written, the specific years, indicate that we should read this literally. This is not a figurative tale. It's not an allegory. Like, no, this is included to tell you real history about real people who really lived and really had kids and really died. Now, how did they live so long? I've not really answered that, and we don't entirely know. Perhaps the, the pre-flood conditions on the earth were conducive to a longer lifespan. We'll touch on that a bit next week in Genesis 6. I've been telling Pastor Casey, it doesn't matter how many essential oils he diffuses in his office, he still can't live longer than God says. <laughs> They're essentially useless. Um, <laughs> Perhaps it took time, though, for the effects of sin and the fall to, uh, you know, be fully realized, to permeate the whole earth. We don't get exactly how all that works. Um, but these people lived a really long time. What I will remind you of that we've been saying for a while here is that Genesis is a historical narrative, real history, that's making a theological argument, it's not recounting history just for the sake of history, but to actually tell us something about what God is doing on the earth. We contrast this with the Babylonian records that the Israelites would have been familiar with where there are, a, there's a, there are genealogies in lists of 10. This Genesis 5 has 10 names. The Babylonian ones had 10 names. But the Babylonian ones said they were kings that lived tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, maybe never died. And so as Moses writes this down, it's a contrast to say, yes, conditions were different then. They could live a really long time, but they really died. What God said, in the day that you eat of this, you will surely die, it really happened that way. And so what we see about mankind is that they are people still living under the curse. Death has become the new normal but praise God, it's not the final word. Well, let me say it again for you. It's important you hear that. Death is now the new normal, but it's not the final word. And so despite living within the curse of sin, that's the major section here of verses 6 through 24, we find the most important section in the whole chapter in verses 21 through 24. So we'll look back at verses 21 through 24 with me. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now right off the bat when you read that, you hear the formula has been broken. Lived so long, had a son, lived a while longer, other sons and daughters, was so old and he died. It breaks here. And the change in the prose is meant to draw our attention and say, there's something significant here. See this. This is different than what we've been saying. 
The phrase that you see in verse 22 and verse 24, it says that Enoch walked with God. It's meant to draw our attention. He said it twice, like, hey, don't forget this. If it wasn't subtle, and, or if it was too subtle and you missed the break, notice two times he walked with God. That word, that phrase means literally to commune. Not like he communed one time with God, but he had a constant state of communing with God. It was the shape of his life. The pattern of his life was to commune with God. Not a legalistic rule-keeping, but a daily confession that walking with God is the only path to life. Not finding his identity in religious accomplishments, but in a humble dependence on God. Saying, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Might have been the song that that Enoch would sing or something like it. And as a result, he didn't die. He says he was not. God took him up at a relatively young age, spry, 365 years old, to draw out the distinction that walking with God, even in a sin-cursed world, is the only path to life. And throughout the rest of the scriptures, you see this idea of walking with God being drawn out as a central and major theme. Let me show you just a couple here. Genesis 17, 1, we read, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Psalm 56, For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Walking before God. Psalm 116.9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I love the simplicity of that one. The only path to true life is to walk with God. Therefore, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I wonder if Psalm 116.9 is not a verse you should commit to memory this week. Put it on a three-by-five card, stick it on your refrigerator, your microwave, your desk, your steering wheel, like wherever it's gonna be prominent in your life, I will walk with the Lord. I will commit to not only confess with my mouth, but with my behavior, recognize that walking with God is the only path to life. Notice a couple things there. It's a walk, not a race. Right, sometimes we get excited, like, man, I'm gonna ingest all kinds of scripture. I'm gonna read the whole Bible in like two weeks here. I'm gonna go hog wild after this. I'm gonna memorize all these verses. I'm gonna do all these service projects. Like, no, it's one foot in front of the other. It's a long race. It's a marathon. It's a walk. And it's not with anyone or anything but God. The reality is there's all sorts of things in our life that are promising life besides walking with God. The last couple weeks, I was so encouraged to sit underneath Pastor Casey's preaching. And uh, I mean, I found my soul just blessed to sit under the word of God. It was so good for me. But one of the things that was difficult and uh, I, I was thinking as he's preaching, and I'm trying to hear, like, what are the idols in my heart? What are the things I love more than Jesus? What are the things that seem to promise life? I'm like, yeah, if I had that, this would be so much more life-giving. I said, Man, it's hard, isn't it, to be really introspective and really think about what that is? But I wonder on this point if we wouldn't just take a second and think about ourselves. What is it in our life that seems to promise more life than walking with God? Is it the social media? 
that promises more life than opening up God's word? I can tell you I'm sitting in my bed before I go to sleep and there's a Bible there and there's a phone there. It's pretty easy to pick up the phone and start scrolling. But the path to life might be putting that aside, picking up my Bible and just reading a couple of Psalms, right? Maybe eating meals promises more life than skipping one so that I can fast and pray for my church and pray for unreached people groups where people have never heard the name of Jesus. The one seems more life-giving, but Genesis 5 tells us it's actually not. Maybe your Amazon cart promises more life than regular, generous giving to God's kingdom. Man, if I had that thing, I would have more life. Genesis 5 tells us it doesn't. Maybe the weekend home projects promise us more life than regularly gathering with God's people. There's all sorts of things in our life, guys. And I would just encourage you, as your pastor, take time to really think inwardly, what are the things that deep down I actually believe are promising and delivering more life than walking with God? And consider the life of Enoch to tell you, no, there's only one path to true life, and it's walking with God. Parents, I want to encourage you right here. Own this discipleship piece with your kids. You are always discipling them whether or not you're using words. Your life is discipling them into where true life is found. And there's all kinds of books you can read, there's seminars you can go to, there's talks on YouTube, and you can get really complicated and really deep, right? We've got some of those books in the bookstore, they're good, they're helpful, I'm always giving books away. But let's keep it simple too. If you'll just do three easy things, you'll be putting yourselves light years ahead in discipling your kids and showing them that the only path to life is in walking with God. What are those three things I think of? There's, there's certainly others. If you'll just read the Bible habitually with your kids. Go to dinner, open it up, read a verse, read a chapter, read somewhere in the middle, read a bunch. It doesn't matter, but walking with God, reading his word when we're together is at the center. Your kids will notice that. They will be shaped by it, and they will see the path to life is here. You make it a priority that you'll be here on Sunday morning with them. Gathering with God's people matters. Your kids shouldn't have to wonder, are we going to church this Sunday? That should be blocked in. They shouldn't have to ask about that. They should know that mom and dad value gathering with God's people to sit under the preaching of God's word because that's the path to life, that we walk with God. And you should involve your kids in regular giving to God's kingdom and whatever percentage, whether you got a lot, you got a little, you're somewhere in the middle, they should know, hey, this is a regular part of our life. That this is the path to life. You do those three simple things. Read the Bible with them, make it a priority to be here, and involve them in generous giving. You're taking great action steps towards discipling them. Yeah, you can do more than that, but I like to keep things simple. The easy starting point of what does it look like to walk with God as the only path to life. That's what we see about people here in Genesis 5, that walking with God is the only path to true life. That brings us to the third question. What does this say about redemption? What does this say about redemption? We know the whole Bible is a plan, or is a book about God and his plan to redeem his people. 
We know that's what it's about. That means it's not a bunch of random stories. It's one central story. It's not merely an ethics book, a TED Talk, or a to-do list. No, it's a book about God and his plan to redeem his people. And we've said that the, the book of Genesis is a historical narrative that is a theological argument. It's telling you something about who God is, about his story, and about you, your story, and how you're supposed to live. There's 10 names in the genealogy. We've said the last couple of weeks that the number seven in the Bible is often a number of completion. Do you know who the seventh name is in this genealogy? Enoch, the righteous one, bringing your eyes to him. Similar strategy is used in Ruth 4. You get a super small genealogy, also 10 names. Seventh name in that genealogy leading to David, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, the righteous one. There's a message embedded here in the histories about redemption. The basic message is this. Sin is continuing. You need a redeemer. And he's going to provide relief and rest from the painful toil of the curse. Let me say that again. Sin's continuing. You need a redeemer. And he will provide rest and relief from the painful toil of the curse. Look back at verses 28 and 29. Let's see this in Genesis 5. Starting in verse 28, we read, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Do you catch that phrase? This one. Is he going to be the redeemer? Is he the serpent crusher? We've been looking for him. Where is he? Maybe this is the one. Now last week in Genesis 4, we saw a different Lamech from a different line contrasted with this week's Lamech from the line of Seth. Last week's Lamech was exceedingly wicked. From the, he was the seed of the serpent, we would have said. This week's Lamech is way different. He's the seed of the woman where the blessing would come. He's marked by reliance on God, not defiance of God, to borrow last week's language. Reliance for rest and relief from the painful toil. Reality is all over the place. We see and feel this painful toil from the curse. Right? You can look at world events. You can look at our own political events. You can look at your own interpersonal relationships. We're like, man, I feel strain, stress, toil here, there. You can look at it in your own relationship with yourself. The parts of you that you like, the parts of you that you hate. You feel the painful toil of the curse all over. And we're looking for rest and relief from it. All of us are. And so Noah's name means comfort or rest. And his dad, Lamech, says he will bring relief. That's why they're saying, maybe he's the serpent crusher. Maybe he's the one. When will this toil end? When can I have relief? When can I have rest? Soon. Soon, they're hoping. And we'll spend the next three or four weeks walking through the life of Noah, so I don't want to get in all the details right now, but let me just give you a high-level overview of what we see kind of in seed form in chapter 5, and then chapter 6 through 9 will be unpacked as we go. 
through Noah's obedience and through the ark, there's an amazing deliverance that's received. Borrow ahead into the flood narrative just a little bit there. He brings great rest. He brings great relief as is promised. And yet, at the end of his life, where do we find Noah? Drunk and naked in the middle of his living room, passed out cold. Not the way you expected the story to unfold, was it? That's chapter 9. You might want to go back and read it this week, but it's a, it's a disturbing picture. And so we're left wondering, what, what's going on? There was so much hope, and yet it ends so badly. What's going on here? It's a reminder that sin is both by nature and by choice. It means that you are a sinner, that's your nature, and as a result, you commit sins that are your choice. And Noah, despite making many good choices, was still a sinner by nature. That meant that any offspring, any seed that would, that would come from him would also inherit this sinful nature. Now, Galatians 3, I jump ahead to the New Testament, tells us that the true offspring, the true seed, the true snake crusher is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that could bring this true rest, this true re relief that we're longing for. Because he doesn't have the sin nature that every other human being does. This is really good news for you. Let me tell you why. It means that he wouldn't come to merely take care of your individual sins, but they would also come and take care of your sin nature. He would come and live the perfect life that you should have lived but didn't. He would take all the penalty. He would die a terrible death that you should have died to pay for your sins so you could be brought right to be with God. So that you can look out and say, Justin, I know that I've been a bad child, I've been a bad spouse, I've been a bad parent, I've been a bad employee, and I need forgiveness. And friend, it is found in Jesus Christ alone. You say, Justin, I've spent money foolishly. I've been ruled by anger. I've been unfaithful to my spouse. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone. But here's the thing. You need more you need more than forgiveness and a second chance. Because experience tells us that if I'm only given a second chance, I'm going to repeat the same things I just did. So forgiveness and a second chance is great. We need that, but we need more than that. And praise God, Jesus did more than that. He gives you a new identity, a new spirit. It's more than a second chance. He makes you a new person. 2 Corinthians 5, behold, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This is why we need Jesus. Friends, what this means then is that your core identity must be found in the true offspring, the true seed, Jesus. And until then, the rest and the relief promised through Noah will never be yours. You'll always be striving and working, but never finding the rest and relief that you desire. All other ground will be sinking sand. So let me finish where we started here. You might find yourself at a railroad crossing, and it feels like a waste of time. What are we really doing here? 
Sometimes obeying God can feel that way, can it not? No, it's not. Remember that your loving Father intends to bless you. So even when his commands feel frustrating, like arms being down at a railroad crossing, remember they are there to bless you. And when you're tempted to do it your way, because I don't need those railroad crossing arms down, they're not that important, I can sneak through here. Remember, the only path to life is by walking with God. Even when you can't see what he's doing or why he's doing it, even when you can't look out your windshield and see the train coming and figure out what's going on, the only path to life is walking with God. And lastly, I wonder if maybe you've tried to cross the tracks on your own. You've been hit by the proverbial train. And when you're struck with the consequences of your sin, remember there's always redemption in Jesus. There's more than a second chance. There's a brand new spirit and a new person that is created if you confess that Jesus is Lord. Repent of your sins. Believe that God raised him from the dead. Stop following your way. Turn and follow him. That's what the Bible calls repentance. It's a turn. I used to go my way. I'm confessing my need. I'm turning. And now I'm following Jesus. You might be like Noah. You might make a whole bunch of good decisions and then fail miserably. I need Jesus. At 500 years old, just like I did when I was five years old. Or you might be stumbling right out of the gate. You say, Justin, I don't have any kind of a track record of good. It's only a bad track record. It's only train wrecks in my life. Remember, Jesus came not only to take away your sin, but to make you a new person. He's not concerned with your past performance because he's promising his performance applied to your account that you can have his perfection if you'll cry out to him. Ask him to save you. Friends, railroad crossings are a bit like genealogies. They might be irritating, but they do tell us something about God, ourselves, and redemption. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word that tells us who you are and what you're doing. Tells us who we are and what the only path to life is. And it tells us about your work of redemption. As we enter into a a time of rest here, God, we ask that you would, by your grace, give us humility to look inward and see where we're bucking against who you are or what you've called us to do or what your plan for redemption is. Help us to see the things that we love more than you, the things that we think will actually deliver life. Give us grace to repent and run to you and cling to you. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. We'll take just a moment here. I'll give you 60 90 seconds to reflect on the sermon, to remember Jesus on the cross. When you're ready, if you're a Christian, you may take communion. If you're not a Christian, don't take communion, but I would urge you to ask Jesus to save you from your sins.